Data Bytes are presented by Data and Society, a research institute in New York City focused on social, cultural, and ethical issues arising from data-centric technological development. For more information, visit datasociety.net. In this Data Byte, Virginia Eubanks discusses her new book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile Police and Punish the Poor. Follow-up panelists include DNS board member and president of the Social Science Research Council, Alondra Nelson and Julia Angwin of ProPublica. Virginia Eubanks is an associate professor of political science at the University of Albany, SUNY, and a founding member of the Our Data Bodies Project. Um, so we're living in this really um, important and interesting moment around what I call the new regime of data analytics, but it goes by a lot of names, right? Um, algorithmic decision making, automated decisions, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, sort of depending on what people are interested in and where their funding has come from, uh, is coming from, they um, call it something different. Um, all I'm trying to say is there's a lot of really great work out there right now that is um, thinking deeply about issues around database discrimination and the role data plays in either in ch either challenging or um, making the inequities of our lives um, worse. Um, so what I want to do is rather than spend time telling you sort of the big, big picture, um, I want to spend a little time telling you how my work's a bit different than the other work um, that's out there. And one of the things that's different is that I ground these tools in history and in political context, because often we talk about these tools about um, as, as if they're sort of the monolith in 2001, right? And they just sort of like fell from the sky and landed in a, on like a blank slate. Um, when in fact the history of these tools is really important to understanding how we end up getting the tools we get. Um, and then the second thing I want to talk a little bit about, and thank you, Dana, for prompting this, is um, one of the things that was really important to me in this project was talking first and starting from the point of view of those folks who are the targets of these systems, who in my book, since I talk about public services, are majority poor and working class families across the color line. And often they're left out of these conversations, even when we're quite explicit about caring about inequities or caring about discrimination. Um, sometimes we don't always talk to the folks who um, face the pointiest end of that stick. So I wanted to make sure to bring their voices into the room. Um, the folks I talked to in my reporting, over 100 interviews, were very, very brave in sharing their stories with me, and I, I, I really want to um, treat those stories with the respect uh, that they deserve. So uh, a quick, uh, a very quick history lesson. There is a chapter in the book, if you decide you want to read it. Um, that basically brings us from the county poorhouse of 1819 up to what I call the digital poorhouse today. And it's like a 25-page romp through the history of poverty policy in the United States. Um, used to be like an 85-page um, romp, and then my editor got to it. Um, so it's a lot more readable now. So if Elizabeth, if you're here, thank Elizabeth for that. Um, and I'm really only going to talk about sort of one moment in this history um, which is the moment that I talk about as the rise of the digital poorhouse. Um, and the thing that's important about this moment is even when I started this work, I assumed that the sort of digitization of public services happened around the passage of 
um, the welfare reforms of 1996 that required that um, local offices computerize and automate some of their processes. Um, so I went to the New York State Archives and I started looking for the tech specs for when that change happened. So I like looked at 96, it wasn't there. I was like, oh yeah, New York State, we're always ahead of the time. So we must have done it like five years earlier. So I look back at 1990, it's not there. I look back in 1985, it's not there. Look back at 80, it's not there. And I just keep going and going and going until I find the moment where we really see these tools um, arrive. And that's actually in the, light, the late 60s and early 70s. Um, and what was happening in the late 60s and early 70s that really created this moment is the National Welfare Rights Movement. Um, the National Welfare Rights Movement was an incredibly successful um, uh, uh, group of organizations and individuals coming mostly out of the civil rights movement who pushed for equal access to public um, resources through public assistance programs. And um, one of their major strategies was a legal strategy in overturning um, a number of discriminatory eligibility laws um, or rules that had existed inside public service. Um, things like um, the man at house rule, which meant that if you were, um, if you were a single mom um, and you had any kind of relationship with a man, that man became financially responsible for your children. Um, uh, man of man in house also made it possible for caseworkers to um, uh, engage in sort of midnight raids of your house to check if there's a man around, right? Um, suitable home rules also um, gave folks a lot of access to your home to check that you were uh, maintaining a suitable home for your children. Um, residency restrictions um, and what was called employable mother, which basically was a rule that said if you could work in domestic service or in agriculture, meaning largely African American and Latino women. Um, then your paid labor was more important to the country than your labor raising your children. Um, and so since you were an employable mother, um, you were um, uh, expected to work and um, barred from public assistance. Um, so the National Welfare Rights Movement takes on these um, rules and has an incredible string of successes, overturning most of them as unconstitutional and for what I think is the first time in history, um, expanding the basic constitutional rights that professional middle class people enjoy to poor and working class people and um, often uh, to um, unmarried moms and to uh, women of color um, who are mothers as well. Um, at the same time, um, we're seeing a backlash against the civil rights movement and the gains of the welfare rights movement um, and, a, and a recession. And so these elected officials and the bureaucrats face this moment where um, it is now legally impossible to discriminate uh, explicitly against folks who are looking for public assistance, um, and yet public opinion, um, professional middle class public opinion, is um, shifting very quickly. And so they're sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. And part of my argument is they um, solve this political problem by um, commissioning this massive um, new set of administrative technologies um, that include things like number matching, fraud detection, um, digital surveillance, um, and all these other tools that we see coming up in um, uh, the late 60s and early 70s. And just really quickly, um, what we see almost immediately, this is the point at which um, the welfare administration technology is um, implemented. Um, and we see an almost immediate drop in the ability of folks um, to access the um, entitlements um, to which uh, they should have access. Um, and this, it's important to understand that this happens way before the cultural narrative changes. So Reagan's welfare queen speech doesn't happen until 1976. 
um, and way, way before the legislation happens, which is 20 years later in 1996. But we already see the beginning of the drop happen really at the moment that these tools are integrated. Um, so I'm not going to spend more time on the history there. Um, I just think it's really important for people to understand the context in which these tools arose, because it helps us understand the kinds of tools we get when we look at the tools that we have now. And I tell three stories in the book. I tell a story of an attempt in the state of Indiana to automate all of the eligibility processes for their um, cash assistance program, TANF, for food stamps, and for Medicaid. And that happened in 2006. I tell the story of an electronic registry of the unhoused in Los Angeles that um, happened in 2013 that they call the Match.com of Homeless Services. Um, and I tell the story of a predictive model that's currently being used, just started in the last year, being used in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, on the home of Pittsburgh, um, to predict which children might be victims of abuse or neglect in the future. Um, so those are the three stories I tell. I'm only going to talk about the first and the third, because um, I think it'll give us enough of a taste um, of what's happening to have a really good conversation. Um, so Indiana... Um, the state of Indiana entered into a $1.16 billion contract with a coalition of high-tech companies that was led by IBM and ACS in 2006. Um, the goal was to automate all of the eligibility for their welfare programs, and they did this by replacing state caseworkers with um, online forms and uh, regional call centers that were staffed mostly by private employees of ACS. Um, but they also importantly did it by replacing what had in the past been a case-based or a family-based system, where a caseworker would... Um, uh, be sort of responsible for a family through their um, interaction with the public service system to what was called a task-based system where um, rather than having a local caseworker, you had a worker at one of these call centers who was seeing a list of tasks um, drop into a queue and they just responded to whatever, ta they were required in fact to respond to whatever task was next. Um, um, and it was... I can't make an argument about intention, but it was pretty effective at breaking the relationships between caseworkers and recipients um, in a way that had really profound consequences for folks um, seeking to access public assistance. Um, this was really the biggest disaster that I talk about in the book, um, or the most straightforward disaster. About a million applications were denied in the first three years of a 10-year project. Um, that was a, a fit, more than 50% increase in denials in the three years before that project. Um, and uh, it, it went so badly, actually, that the state of Indiana broke the contract um, with IBM. IBM then sued the state of Indiana for breach of contract. And in the early part of the legal battle won, um, so uh, that the, they kept the $400 plus million that they had already collected on the contract and then were awarded $50 million in um, uh, penalties as well. That has since gone into arbitration and gotten a little bit more complicated. Um, but it was a real mess. <clears throat> but I just want you to hear a little bit from one of the people I write about and about her experience with this system. Um, and I also want to give you a sense of what the book kind of sounds like. Um, so I want to tell you a, a little bit about Omega Young. In the fall of 2008, Omega Young of Evansville missed an appointment to recertify for Medicaid because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. The cancer that began in her ovaries had spread to her kidneys, breast, and liver. Her chemotherapy left her weak and emaciated. 
Young, a round-faced, umber-skinned mother of two grown sons, struggled to meet the new system's requirements. She called the Vanderburg County Help Center to let them know she was hospitalized. Her medical benefits and food stamps were still cut off for failure to cooperate. Um, and that was largely how people lost their benefits, was a sort of catch-all term, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility, which basically meant that you had missed an appointment, you had missed a signature on, a, on, a, on an application, and these are applications that run anywhere from 12 to 120 pages long and require, you know, five to, five to 50 um, pieces of supporting documentation. Um, because she lost her benefits, Young was unable to afford her medication. She lost her food stamps. She struggled to pay her rent. She lost access to free transportation to medical appointments. And Omega Young died March 1st, 2009. On the next day, March 2nd, she won an appeal for wrongful termination, and all of her benefits were restored. So that's the Indiana case. Um, I want to talk too briefly about the Allegheny County case, partially because there's been a, I've had a recent sort of exchange um, a couple of weeks ago. There was a piece written for the New York Times Sunday Magazine about this system. Um, and I just um, published some excerpts from this chapter on Wired.com on Monday um, to sort of provide some balance to um, the perspective that that writer um, had on the system. Um, it's really interesting to look at the two together um, because we talked many of the same people, and we were working in Pittsburgh at about the same time, but we come to very different conclusions about the system. So um, I recommend looking them up um, and seeing what you think. Um, so the system in Pittsburgh is uh, called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. Um, and the quick history of it is in um, 1999, uh, the Allegheny County Department of Human Services uh, commissioned this um, large data warehouse that collects data extracts from 29 um, county and state programs, including like juvenile and adult probation, um, the Pittsburgh Public Schools, the Police Department, the Office of Income Maintenance, so a lot of public programs. Um, in 2012, the office released an RFP um, funded by uh, some private backers, some foundation backers, um, to ask folks to propose projects that would mine this data to help the agency make more informed decisions around human services. Um, that contract went to Rima Vaitianathan, uh, or a, an international team led by Rima Vaitianathan from the University of Auckland and Emily Putnam Hornstein from USC um, to build the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, which is supposed to be able to predict which children will face um, abuse or neglect sometime in the future. Um, there, it's basically a statistical regression. It's not actually um, uh, AI or machine learning, though it's often written about as if it is. Um, and it's a model that's based on 131 factors that they found in the data warehouse that they believe are indicators of future maltreatment um, of children. And basically how it works is when a call comes in to the uh, Allegheny County hotline for child abuse and neglect, um, the intake workers will interview the caller. They, they have a high level access to the data warehouse, so they look through the data warehouse to provide a history. And then they make a decision on two factors. One is the, the risk they believe um, the allegation poses, um, whether or not it's um, actually child abuse or neglect uh, as defined by law. And the second is how safe they feel that child is. 
Um, once they make those two um, decisions, they run the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, which gives them a score, a risk score, from one being the lowest risk to 20 being the highest. Um, it shows up like on a thermometer looking thing on their screen. It's green at the bottom, red at the top. Um, and based on those three factors, um, the intake screener or them with their manager make a decision about whether or not to screen that case in for a, a full investigation um, by children, youth, and families. Often that's called Child Protective Services, but in um, Allegheny it's called CYF. Um, it is important to know that if the score is high enough, uh, it actually will automatically tri trigger uh, an investigation unless it's overridden by their supervisor. And I just want you to hear the voices of the families who are the targets of this quickly, and then we'll move to um, the conversation part. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about Angel Shepard and Patrick Grebe. So I met Angel and Patrick at the Duquesne Family Support Center, which is one of 26 community hubs where families attend programs, access resources, and connect with others. Angel and Patrick didn't stand out right away because their experience is so utterly average, characteristic of the routine, mundane indignities experienced by many white working class people. They've um, struggled with low wage, dangerous work, with poor quality public schools and predatory online colleges, poor health and community violence. Um, though they're creative, involved parents, Angel and Patrick have racked up a lifetime of interactions with CYF. Patrick was investigated for medical neglect in the early 2000s when he was unable to afford his daughter Tabitha's antibiotic prescription after an emergency room visit. When Harriet, Angel's daughter, was five, someone phoned in a string of reports to the child abuse and neglect hotline. The anonymous tipster explained that Harriet was running around the neighborhood unsupervised, that she was down the block teasing a dog, that she wasn't being properly clothed, fed, bathed, and that she wasn't getting her anti-seizure medication. For each call, an investigator came to the house, interviewed Harriet and Tabitha, Angel and Patrick, looked in all the cupboards and under all the beds, and requested access to the family's medical records. And then each time, finding no evidence of maltreatment, they closed the case. Each of these interactions was entered into the family's case file, which is held in the integrated data warehouse, which feeds the AFST. Patrick and Angel live in terror that there'll be another call on their family and that the algorithm will target their daughter or granddaughter for investigation and possibly for removal to foster care. You feel like a prisoner, said Angel. You feel trapped. It's like no matter what you do, it isn't good enough for them. My daughter is now nine, and I'm still afraid that they're going to come up one day and see her out by herself, pick her up, and say, you can't have her anymore. So the reason I wanted to leave um, my part of the conversation on the Allegheny Family Screening Tool um, is uh, that it, it creates some real challenges for how many of us thinking about algorithmic discrimination are thinking about solutions. Um, many of the, the, um, the flaws in the system are flaws that we, we expect, right? So it uses proxies that are probably inappropriate. Um, it has a very late, uh, limited data set um, that it is validated on, um, which only includes information about people who access public services, right? So if you get private, um, if you have private insurance for um, your mental health 
healthcare or for your addiction um, care, that's not going to end up in the database. Um, if you have uh, babysitters and nannies, um, they're not going to end up in the database. If you're in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not going to end up in the database. It's only going to end up in the database um, if you ask, ask for help from county mental health services or you ask for help from a county-supported alcohol um, and drug rehabilitation um, center, right? So these problems are the kinds of problems that we talk about a lot. The thing that I think is really challenging about the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is I call it in the book the best worst case scenario, um, which is they in fact have done everything that we ask them to do as people who write about data and discrimination. One, all the folks I talk to have really good intentions and are really smart people and really are care about what happens to poor kids and poor families. Um, two, the design of this tool was participatory. They held a series of community workshops. They talked to front, um, frontline caseworkers. They talked to foster parents. Um, they talked to community organizations um, about the model. They've been totally transparent about the model. They've released all of the information about it, except for the weights of the predictive variables, which I'm still looking to get. Um, that they have not released, but we have a full list of the predictive variables, right? All the things we are concerned about when they're private algorithms that we don't have, are black boxes, we don't have access to the innards of. Um, and it's publicly owned, right? It's something that is controlled, at least in, in theory, by democratic um, processes. So where I want to sort of leave us as a place to talk um, as a larger group and between Alondra and Julia and myself is how do we respond when designers do everything we ask them to and still produce a system that I think is one of the most dangerous things I've ever seen in terms of the health of poor and working class families. So one, like how do we respond to that? And then the second question that I think we could talk about in a really productive way um, is why, if we're doing everything right, are we still producing systems that police punish and profile the poor? Um, so that's where I'd like to leave what I have to say. Um, and I'd like to invite Julia and Alondra to come up um, and pepper us all with fascinating and insightful questions. Thank you so much. Thanks.